Welcome to the Health Leaders Podcast, the place for peer-sourced and solution-focused insights for healthcare executives, with new episodes airing every Tuesday. My name is Eric Wickland, and I'm the Technology and Innovations Editor for Health Leaders. In today's episode, we're talking to Nate Lackman, a partner in the Foley and Lardner Law Firm and chair of its National Telemedicine and Digital Health Industry Team, and TJ Ferranti, a partner in that firm and a member of that Telemedicine and Digital Health Industry Team. We'll be focusing on what healthcare organizations should be paying attention to in telehealth policy over the next few months, particularly with the proposed 2023 physician fee schedule uh, the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule issued by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for having us, Eric. It's a real pleasure. All right, then. Let's 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 get right in. Then now we've got TJ and Nate here, so um, we got kind of uh, we got a real good conversation that's going to be going on here. First, in your opinion, um, what are the most important telehealth policy issues that that healthcare leaders should be keeping an eye on right now? Maybe I'll I'll take a stab at one. Right? Okay. I really think it's the ending of the the PHE waivers. You know, we've relied on these waivers for uh, three years now, and I think they've gone on longer than most people would have expected. I remember when <clears throat> the president said that COVID was going to last two weeks. <laughs> it's been a little bit longer than that, uh, and it's difficult when you have baked service lines and business models and features. Uh, you want to build them out according to what the state of the law is, and that's what you should do. But with the uncertainty about whether or not these waivers are going to expire every 90 days, I think that has uh, created a little bit of anxiety. And then after a while, with all these continued renewals, it led uh, a lot of hospitals and health systems to think, okay, well, these waivers will essentially become permanent. And I think we're realizing now that they will not. Some of these waivers will end in lapse before there are permanent changes made into effect either through law or regulation. And I, and I think that is something that's been permeating throughout uh, a lot of our client base. TJ has seen a lot of that as well. Yeah, I mean, just to add on top of that, it's, I mean, I think Nate hit the nail on the head. It's really all tied to the public health emergency. That's at least the big topic for discussion. Um, and what makes it a little bit more complicated is it's not just the end of the public health emergency itself, but all of the things that are tied to that date. And they're not all equally tied to that date. So when we have, for example, this 90-day renewal period, we have a statement from the administration saying they'll let us know 60 days before it terminates that it may end. We then have the, the actual sunset of the public health emergency and certain things will end immediately. We have uh, legislation that passed that says, well, some things will last 151 days. We have other pieces that say, well, it's actually longer than that. It's, it can be a, a calendar end of the calendar year in which it ends. So it's not even the uh, ending itself um, is very clear. And so from an operational perspective, it's been frustrating for those that we represent in the industry to, to navigate that. Yeah, what's really frustrating is a lot of these rules that have been waived are some of the most counterintuitive or labyrinthian features of healthcare regulation. So a lot of folks were happy to see them you know, temporarily disappear, obviously under the guise of patient safety or access, but it's even harder now to, you could have any sort of uh, metaphor, cat out of the bag, uh, uh, cows out of the barn, genie out of the bottle, whatever, but to put them back in and explain to a client saying, yeah, you can still have a doctor do a telemedicine consult while the patient's in the ED, 
and issue the orders for inpatient admission, but the actual physician listed as the admitting physician of record must be somebody else who then does an in-person exam within 24 hours. Otherwise, you're a non-compliant model. And people were like, I didn't even know that existed before COVID, right? Uh, so that's been uh, exceedingly difficult to get them to understand these highly technical aspects that are going to go away when the waivers end. Yeah, yeah. a lot of these health systems, when the waivers came about, uh, they, a lot of them were designed to uh, allow for more telehealth coverage, more telehealth services brought out, and it, they certainly helped during the pandemic. And certainly a lot of health systems adopted telehealth programs. So with the idea that uh, the, the public health emergency uh, will end, and we think, what, next year at some point, what should health systems be doing now with their telehealth strategies? Well, it's curious because at the same period of time, like three years that we had a, uh, I don't want to say that there were no laws, but certain like uh, lessening of any regulatory uh, oversight, we saw a rapid acceleration in the use and adoption of telemedicine. So the industry like matured, it grew at a faster clip than it was previously used to and more than it had forecast. And at the same time of that growth, it occurred during a period where there are very few rules and regulations, some of which would have inhibited that, that very same growth. But the net net is that patients writ large know about telemedicine, use it, and are comfortable with it in ways that they absolutely were not in 2019. The same can be said of the scrutiny uh, put on the industry by investigative reporters or uh, state and federal regulators, uh, patients and providers themselves, or even uh, B2B contracts and when you're doing M&A due diligence. So no longer is it a situation, even pre-2019, where you can say, oh, this is quasi-experimental and uh, things are hardly ever enforced or, yeah, people might take that risk, but um, we haven't really seen many people getting in trouble. Well, now I think the expectations are higher. This is, in fact, clearly medical services like it's always been and it will be treated as such. And that's where you're seeing more audits and you're seeing uh, extra scrutiny. So not only do you have to prepare it for the elimination of these waivers, I think uh, the lens or the, the expectations on the telemedicine industry are much higher than they were pre-COVID. And, and, to, and to really think about that, you know, what is it, you know, the initial question was, what do you, what do health systems need to do to prepare? I think mm -hmm. they do have to take a hard look of what it would mean for the waivers to end to their particular, that particular system or uh, clinical provider, because it's, it's really, you know, we talk about it and we conflate it, but there really are two main issues. One uh, uh, component of the flexibilities talks about just the ability to actually perform a service in compliance with medical practice standards in a particular state uh, from a federal uh, level or, or state level. Um, in other words, can I even do this? Uh, and is this a medically is this is this appropriate under the law? The second layer, however, is uh, maybe you can do it, but will you get paid for it? And so those are two separate issues because the question might be, well, yes, we can do it, but maybe we then now have like a cliff of any sort of Medicare reimbursement and you have to battle with issues of, well, for the last three years, we've been servicing a patient virtually in this manner. They've they've appreciated that and improved and have had access to care via that methodology. 
and and now we may have to uh, look at an alternative means to withdraw that because maybe it's no longer allowed under a, a practice standard or economically maybe there's no longer reimbursement for it and so maybe that patient now has to come out of pocket and pay for that and that could be frustrating as well so i think it's important to understand those two differences and then how to uh, how would a health system uh, address that in the event that you know uh, reimbursement is is reduced or uh, restricted uh, in their ability to actually provide the service from a clinical perspective i mean that's such a good point right because during take for one one type of waiver the state licensing waivers um and it essentially caused a lot of ho for hospitals and health systems specifically right you could say oh they're more a bit more conservative illegally than maybe some early stage companies pre-covid but during this period of waivers, their catchment area basically became national, and they started delivering these uh, services via telemedicine, attracting patients using their specialty expertise, becoming sort of a destination medicine, doing uh, online second opinion programs that weren't, did not meet the peer-to-peer -peer consult exception. And now that they see these, uh, already states have rolled back their licensing waivers. Uh, it's very difficult. Uh, the business uh, units don't want to give up that revenue. The treating physicians don't want to give up their opportunities with patients, nor do they want to blow their continuity of care obligations to care for these patients. And it seems like some of the in-house legal department finding themselves with less of a voice. It's not so easy. The easy answer would be, oh, we'll just get the doctors licensed everywhere. That is uh, for a hospital or health system really cost prohibitive and it doesn't even make business sense to get a doctor a, a nephrologist licensed in all 50 states when maybe she's only drawing patients from a dozen states and so they're having to start to think more like uh medical practice groups or i i would say even startups or emerging companies about what makes business sense how do we balance the risk versus the benefit here i can't say that i can't think of any of the hospitals or health systems that we work with who have said you know what I'm just giving up on a multi-state footprint. We're going to retract everything 100% and go back into our closed universe. I don't know anybody who's doing that. And I can remember when, yeah, pre-COVID, interstate licensure was a big issue, and there was a lot of conversation about uh, everything from licensure compacts to one license throughout the country and so on and so forth. It, that had kind of died down because of because of the pandemic and the, and the PHE. So that's that's good. This is going to come back up again. Uh, will we see uh, a new renewed interest in these licensure compacts or or some sort of legislation to to, to kind of help the idea of interstate licensure along? Yeah, and this is TJ. I mean, I think, mm -hmm. you know, I don't think much has changed on, on that regard. I know for a while they were, you know, we, we all experienced flexibilities on, on a state by state level that that, uh, you know, was sort of an experiment on how a uniform license environment may look. That said, you know, you know it, because states uh, are very much um, like to have the control over how medical services are provided to the residents of their own state, I personally don't see, at least in the near term, for sure, any sort of uh, uh, appetite for a, a sort of federal license. Even if that were to be passed at a federal level, I think there would be some challenges to that. Um, just from the, the legal ability to do so. That said, you know, from from the compact perspective, both nursing compact, physician, physical therapy, there's a number of them that have started. 
I think there have been efforts to collaborate the process itself to say, hey, look, a state can still have authority over the licensing process and a certain level of standards, but they can they can collaborate on what those standards can be and simplify the application process. Um, it may not be a reciprocity approach, but it can be a much more uniform approach to reduce the burden um, that exists today with a haphazard application process. Um, so I think today there's like 37, 38 states that have joined the compact, something like that. And those those uh, that number continues to grow. And I think the more adoption there will um, help with the licensing process. Yeah, I mean, I feel for the argument, right? Um, the, the human body, how different is it uh, in a person in California versus their medical needs uh, in Miami? <laughs> I mean, maybe significant. I don't know. But uh, I, I think there is something to be said. Oh, only one medical license is necessary for clinical purposes. But we don't want to overlook the oversight and protecting patient needs. And it's not just the medical board doesn't just uh, hit up doctors for unlicensed practice of medicine. They nudge and, and help them in corrective actions and discipline and give affirmative guidance and think about uh, declaratory statements and rules interpretations. There's a lot more to it. And in order to have that done, um, it typically would need to be delegated to state by state or regional anyhow if you had a federal structure. And it costs money to do so. So I don't know if the net net would actually reduce any fees or costs that doctors have to pay or reduce the amount of human beings or personnel that needs need to work in these administrative oversight scenarios uh, even if you were to have a national license you couple that with a with some serious constitutional considerations under the 10th amendment we're just coming off decisions like the dobbs and whatnot which give more deference to states to set these rules and i think it would be increasingly tricky to then all of a sudden say you know what we're gonna have federal uh supremacy here on medical license Think about all the other licensed professions, whether it's lawyers or cosmetologists or uh, roofing companies or what uh, uh, insurance plans. Those are all really regulated on a state-by-state -state basis, and it would create some really significant macro considerations that I think are largely too, too unwieldy to expect change to occur anytime soon. Yeah. That's my, yeah. on the over-under, I'm taking the under. And of course, we're talking about this because of the the advent of telehealth platforms now, where a doctor can basically treat a patient in any state, and and and, and some of these programs, these hub and spoke telemedicine programs that, that span several states, it it certainly poses a problem for health systems that want to to expand their base uh, to to make sure that the the physicians they're using on these platforms are licensed in those states. Let's let's spend a minute or or two or more on another specific topic that that came out of the uh, COVID um, that that I know we've talked about a lot is the the use of telehealth for substance abuse uh, treatment. Um, some of the waivers that came through certainly made it easier for physicians to use telehealth to treat people with uh, opioid use disorder. Um, how do you see with 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 the idea that we're nearing the end of the public health emergency, um, where is this going to go? How do you see that playing out? Yeah, yeah. So, um, no, great question, Eric. And we we actually work with a number of clients in this space, and uh, it, it's actually it's been amazing to see. You know, some of them started earlier in 2019, 18, and, and before, but especially once the the public health emergency um, happened and the flexibility. Uh, were put into place, 
a, a, a new industry was formed almost immediately because of such a big need for it. And that need was if, if you know, it's, it's easy to forget, but going into COVID, we had another crisis that was a national public health emergency crisis, and that was uh, the opioid crisis. And so substance use, dis substance use disorder, opioid use disorder was a hot topic and it continued, and that just didn't just go away because of COVID. And so people and patients who really needed that support were um, left without it because of the clinical closures that occurred from brick and mortar. And so what happened was uh, based on demand and, and, and I think virtually a lot of these new companies stepped up and, and offered a service for these types of patients, which you know only merely weeks or months before was illegal, both on a state and federal level in a lot of ways. And so with those flexibilities, they, there's been a lot of flourishing on those. There's been additional uh, clinical efficacy that has, uh, through studies that have been shown. And um, I think there's, uh, you know, a, a real uh, evidence-based evidence kind of um, now platform that they can point to to say, look, uh, we have shown that this is a good thing, um, despite uh, concerns articulated previously of drug diversion and abuse, et cetera. Not that those have completely gone away, but it's not like there's been like a, this rampant uh, 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 abuse that has gone on because they have been provided services virtually. And so, uh, you know, of course, uh, we are in our heart is with the, the providers that perform those services. We're a little bit biased in that regard, but I, I think it's been a good thing. The, what's called into question now, however, is it, with the waivers ending, in, in the state laws sort of uh, going back to what they were previously in some instances, there's been a lot of uh, regulatory and legal challenges. So there's been a lot of lobbying efforts from that industry to move forward uh, with change that is required from a legislative perspective on, this, on the state and federal uh, platforms. Um, but it, a lot of it is, is just going to be some growing pains because of it's a cutting edge place. I was actually uh, helping a client just a week or, or two ago, and we were having conversations and dialogue with the state. And the state was actually trying to, you know, be helpful with it. But the reality was, is their regulations just were, you know, they're 25 years old. They didn't contemplate this at all. And so their regulations talk about like inspections and surveys at physical locations. There was a life safety code, a fire sprinkler obligation. And, you know, those virtual companies, they don't have that, you know, facility presence. And so the, the, the rules will take some time to catch up with it, even if the policy momentum is there. So, um, but, but I think going forward that the momentum will continue to carry it. And I don't think it's going to be completely removed. Uh, by any means, um, I think I think that that ship has sailed, and we'll continue to see growth in that space. Yeah, but I have some serious concerns about the approach that the federal agencies have taken with communicating their plans, uh, and it may may have been through the best of intentions, but the result is there is a large amount of misinformation out there in the industry and online as to a what the current state of the play is right what these laws require and b what we can expect to see uh down the road for example you'll commonly see refrains from like uh, credible third-party sources that 